to another episode of One More Time, a Wind Band podcast. I'm your host for this episode, Lucy Yaki, and this month we'll be discussing wind band compositions written for particular causes, with a special focus on the intersection of wind bands and environmentalism. Later in the episode, we'll be speaking with composers Stephen Bryant and Viet Quang about compositions inspired by climate change, as well as with collegiate band director Dr. Jay Watkins about steps that some band programs are taking to reduce their environmental impact. We'll also have our two-minute rehearsal technique segment. First, we have a conversation with Scott Schwartz, the director of the Sousa Archives and Center for American Music about John Philip Sousa's dedications of some of his compositions. Scott, thank you so much for joining me. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me again. Of course. Uh, this topic deals with Sousa's dedications of his music. Oh, yes. We could probably spend the next three hours talking about all of the the dedications, um, what I refer to as the good dedications, the bad dedications, and just plain ugly dedications. Um, um, and of course, he never thought of them as bad or ugly, but you know, the public's reaction to them, um, well, sometimes was colorful at best. <laughs> well, let's start out with the good. Essentially, Sousa um, often dedicated his pieces to um, people who asked him to compose a new work, um, sometimes paid him to write a new work, or essentially um, something that essentially honored him or caught his attention. Um, for example, in 1924, he, he wrote um, the Ancient and Honorable Artillery Company March. Um, and he did this largely because of his, his support of American military units. Okay? Now, when I say this, we might think, okay, Civil War, we might think World War I, but no, actually, um, the ancient and honorable artillery company of Boston is to this day still the oldest military organization in the United States. This is a revolutionary organization. And um, they, they want, um, you know, essentially a tune written for him. He's quite taken by them. And um, he incorporates essentially their favorite march into this, this work. All right, so he's ripping off a march melody and incorporating it in his tune. Well, for this military unit, their theme song is Old Lang Syne. All right, now um, for all of the people in the audience, the only time you think of Old Lang Syne is just before you pitch down another pint of beer and welcome in the new year as you throw out the old. And he creates this piece using Old Lang Syne to essentially um, honor this military group. Um, he, he goes on to other types of dedications. In 1931, he writes the Circumnavigators Club March. Now, I should point out, to be a member of this rather elite social organization 
you had to have traveled around the world and you had to have sincere interest in other foreign countries. Of course, Mr. Souza has traveled the world um, and a large bulk of Europe, so he was a member of that organization. The, the march is the last march he writes. He, he writes no more after 1931, but in his manuscript copy, he writes the following in terms of a dedication. It's a bit long, but here goes. I am a member of the Circumnavor Debtors Club for the following reasons. I went from New York to London, from London on a tour in England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales, sailed from Plymouth to Tenerife, sailed again from Tenerife to Cape Town, toured South Africa, sailed from Cape Town to Australia, toured that country, sailed from Melbourne to Tasmania, toured that country and sailed from there to New Zealand, toured that country and went from New Zealand to Suava, and from Suava to Honolulu, and from Honolulu to Vancouver, British Columbia, from British Columbia to New York. Then signs it John Philip Sousa, Port Washington, October 29th. 1931, you begin to get a flavor. I confess that particular dedication is the longest one I have in our entire collection. It very much wanted the um, music to speak for itself. Um, other dedications are a bit more somber. Um, in um, 1881, when President Garfield is inaugurated in March, Sousa writes a march for that inauguration. And it's kind of a peppy piece, you know, your typical inauguration, but not too peppy because it has to be dignified. Well, for those people who remember history a bit, um, Garfield had a short tenure. Um, he was shot in 1885 and, well, People thought he might survive the assassination attempt. The doctors ensured him that he was going to die, and he did. And so, in great um, sadness, Sousa writes in memoriam for the president's funeral. You could think of it this way, as Sousa wrote the first march of Garfield's tenure as president, and the last march of his tenure. And, you know, quite frankly, if I were the following president, I would probably ask, dear Lord, ask Sousa not to write anything for me. He has a bad track record. Of course, he does write a piece in 1876. It's called The Honored Dead, and it's written largely just to honor the soldiers who died during the Civil War. And um, the honored dead um, wasn't a popular piece, um, and I can honestly say probably not a great work of Sousa's, but nevertheless, when um, Grant, who was a Civil War soldier and president, dies in 1885, the band plays the honored dead to recognize that soldier. So we have essentially, you know, three pieces that come together tied to presidents. 
And in 1919, Sousa writes another work, it's called The Golden Star, and he dedicates it to Mrs. Theodore Roosevelt in memory of the brave who gave their lives that liberty shall not perish. Essentially, the piece was written for Mrs. Sousa, and or not Mrs. Sousa, Mrs. Roosevelt, um, and, and Teddy Roosevelt, to recognize their son Quentin's death during World War I in France. Um, and it, it's a sort of lovely tune. Um, it's, it's a memorial um, tune. It, it's not going to be something that you know, is peppy that you're going to want to um, you know, play at the next, um, next celebration of the country. But um, Sousa basically sums up his com comments about this in an interview. The peace will not be a monetary success. One cannot write from his heart and write for rewards. I was thinking of those fine young boys who will never return. So again, a march dedicated to one soldier, but really referring to all who died during the world. Um, so we begin to get a sense of Sousa's perspectives in terms of the pieces he writes. And most of the pieces I've mentioned so far are tunes that we rarely hear, um, which is kind of unfortunate. We should play them to get a fuller picture of Sousa's music. Another um, example, um, probably a little more um, professional, the, the Northern Pines. Um, the Northern Pines is a march that was written in 1931. It was dedicated to the students and teachers of Interlaken. Now, Sousa, A. Austin Harding, and Joseph Maddy are considered the fathers of the American school band movement, which starts off in 1920. Um, Interlaken is a summer camp. Um, give students an opportunity to develop their music skills and so forth. And in 1930, Mr. Sousa was invited to visit Interlaken and conduct the student ensembles. And so impressed by the student's commitment to hard work and performance that he said, I'm going to write a piece for the students of Interlaken. And he does this in 1931. Now the kicker here is that not only did he dedicate this, this march, and it's a lovely march, um, to the Interlaken um, school and community, he also gave them copyright ownership of the piece, meaning that all royalties for this piece were paid to Interlaken and not Mr. Souza. So you might say that Mr. Souza put his money where his mouth was for this particular dedication. And um, for those who have not heard or played the Northern Pines, I, mean, I would recommend, um, take a listen to it. It is a lovely piece, not 
often done. I think my, my funniest um, dedication, actually, um, and I suspect most people are completely unaware of this, in 1884, Sousa writes the Intaglio Waltzes, and he dedicates these waltzes to Miss Dora M. Miller of California. Her father is Senator John F. Miller, who happens to be a very good friend of Mr. Sousa's. Now that's fine, and you know, quite frankly, you know, the waltzes are lovely pieces. Um, is it grand art? Hell no. Strauss, you don't have to worry about. <laughs> But in 1897, Sousa asks President McKinley, would it be all right if I wrote a piece for Mrs. McKinley? And President McKinley said, sure, yeah, that would be delightful. So he writes this piece and calls it The Lady of the White House. However, there was a little problem with this particular tune. The Lady of the White House was actually a very modest revision of Intaglio Waltzes in 1884. And when Mrs. McKinley discovered that the dedication to her was actually previously dedicated to another woman, oh she... <laughs> She didn't cotton to it so well, and I think that was probably the most immediate death to that piece. I mean, I hope this has helped help people to understand some of the dedications that um, Souza um, used throughout his career. And I hope more importantly that it will entice you to um, listen to one of these tunes that are hardly ever played and just sit back and imagine the dedication and the music and you think to yourself how you would react. Lots of historical context there. Thank you so much for sharing. My pleasure. Next, we have our two-minute rehearsal technique with Cindy Severino. Cindy is currently the director of bands at Cooper Middle School in Buffalo Grove, Illinois. The bands at Cooper Middle School have gone on to win numerous awards at concert band and jazz band festivals throughout the Chicagoland area for the last 20 years. Prior to arriving at Cooper, Mrs. Severino taught general music in Northern Illinois and earned a degree in music education from Northern Illinois University. One rehearsal technique that we use at Cooper Middle School is solo so lead during rehearsals. And I find this to be very effective on helping kids to play by themselves um, as well as with the group. So it gets them used to performing certain concepts and fundamentals and playing them correctly um, because they become a little nervous, they need to learn it, and uh, they work hard on getting it perfected for each time they have to play solo soli. So for example, couple of the things we do solo soli in our rehearsals is we begin with our scales um, 
our students from sixth grade all the way through eighth grade, um, depending on which group they're in, will begin with a scale and we'll play it as a group together and then I'll call on someone and they'll play the scale by themselves. And then we play as a group again and then someone else will be called on. And we do this at every rehearsal. They become very accustomed to the solo soli pattern. We also do this with rhythms too. So we have rhythms in their books that we use and they need to be able to clap, tap their foot, and count the rhythm, solo soli. So we'll begin as a group and clap a line of rhythms together, and then I'll call on some, someone, and they'll have to be able to clap and count those rhythms as well. So I find that solo soli is a really good uh, rehearsal technique to use. Um, it makes the students very accountable for what they're playing, um, as well as playing by themselves, it creates a lot of confidence. And so it becomes real norm for them to play by themselves along with playing with the group. So I think that uh, incorporating that into a rehearsal is something that's very positive for a band program. Next up is producer Owen Henderson's conversation with composer Stephen Bryant about his piece, The Automatic Earth. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. So could you just describe your piece, The Automatic Earth, for me? Sure. I actually haven't talked about it in a little while. I haven't talked about any of my music. Usually I'm on stage to, you know, introducing a piece for a concert, but I haven't been to a concert or heard any of my music in a long time now. Let me think about this, actually, uh, so I don't leave something out. So it was written, uh, that was, what is this? Yeah, two years ago. It premiered about two years ago at Arizona State University. And the director of bands there, Gary Hill, talked to me about two years before that about writing a piece. And he said, use all of the resources at our disposal. Go nuts. Something big, something unsettling. He specifically asked for that, something that makes us uncomfortable. So with that prompt, I you know, went deep and dark. So it is a large piece. I forget how long it is, 20, 30 minutes. I don't remember. But it's, I, I looked, I thought about two different sort of topics I honed in on. And at first I was thinking about um, social media and surveillance and, you know, which is everybody's now aware of, of how everything that you do online is tracked and used to market to you and build up a profile of you. Um, all the big things, Facebook, Amazon, all that stuff, but even the smaller ones. Um, and so I thought a lot about that, but it seems like to me that the climate crisis is the overarching crisis in a series of waves of other sorts of crises that are all on top of each other. But that's the one in the background that it doesn't matter who you are or where you are, where you're born. It's going to degrade, at best, just degrade the quality of life and cause a lot of suffering in the coming decades. And we don't seem to be doing anything about it. I, I'd long had that in the back of my mind, but I couldn't figure out how to make it into a piece of music. How do you make something like that poetic? And so it's not really me up there screaming, hey, everything's going to hell. We got to change our ways. I, we, we do, me included. We're all in this and we're all guilty because we're part of a system that itself is doing the damage, just existing day and day. You know, you're doing damage, you're, you drive your car, fly on an airplane, which I do, and I feel guilty about it. But it's more of a poetic kind of exploration of going deep in that, my own psyche, wrestling with it. Uh, and then there's a lot of poetry I pulled up. What's his name? Robinson Jeffers, I think. I've written so many pieces now that sometimes I get details confused. So some of the movement titles come from the, the poetry of <clears throat> that I mentioned, Robinson Jeffers, as well as Paul Simon lyrics. I love to do that kind of take little phrases. Um, so the movements are a slow fire, days of miracle and wonder, shining of shadow, the automatic earth, and the language of light. And they're all connected. Um, these are more sections, but they all want it, 
one run one into the next. And so there's a lot of darkness and a lot of space and a lot of introspection in the piece. I can't tell you that bar 35 means this or the big climax moment in movement four means this. I, if I were that literal, I'd probably write books instead of music. But I hope it takes you on a journey of, of introspection about this and ambiguity at the ending about... Well, so the other layer to this piece, and it sort of ties into a piece I did 10 years ago called Ecstatic Waters, which is the first big piece I wrote with electronics. And I should note that the piece is for band and electronic sounds. Both of them are. So that one is all about... Uh, you can listen to that one on the website for free as well. Technology and it taking over our lives, not just around us, but as part of our body's augmentation. So this is sort of, in a way, a sequel to that, but I think less optimistic and tech bro, yay, we're going to you know upload our conscience and live forever. I'm a little less optimistic about all of that and sure that that's even what I want. But I also think as the pressures on our survivability and habit of the habitability of the planet get greater, we're going to get more desperate and all of the technological things we're trying and the stuff that's even happening secret we don't know about you know artificial intelligence exploits um augmenting the human body changing what it is to be human in order to survive on a planet that doesn't support what it used to mean to be human i think the future is going to be very weird very uncomfortable very soon and so wrestling with all of that is that's what this piece the automatic earth is you touched on this a little bit earlier, but could you talk a little bit more about what motivated you to write this piece? I know you said you were asked to go to an unsettling place. Can you talk more about that? Sure. Well, Gary Hill, who this was his final year at the university, so he's retired now, but he was, again, the the prompting to do that. I, I don't know that I would have gone there without someone saying, here, here are a lot of resources, a really great ensemble. I want you to go there and write a piece that not everybody's going to, you know, like. It's not shiny and happy. There are shiny, happy moments. The second movement. Yeah, so I took it and ran with that. And I had to think about that a lot. So I, that was really the impetus. And then I was all on my own. He didn't give any further guidance. No one else said, hey, make it like this, do this, go down this path. Um, I just, that's how most composition starts. A whole lot of thinking and pondering and some reading and listening and wrestling with things. So I can't really give you like, I don't know, some great soundbite of a description of why or how I got there. But reading some about the Dark Mountain Project, which I think is poets and creators who deal with climate change. Sort of, I think that sort of helped me find a way to make this a more poetic subject instead of just a one of science and carbon emissions. You know, I'm not one of those people to go and take all the numbers from a data graph and map that to pitches and say, here's the music. You know, I sometimes that can produce some interesting results if you're creative about the way you map the stuff, but that's not my thing. So I don't really have a better answer. I'm sorry. It just somehow I came to that and then went down that path for about six or eight or 10 months and came out the other side with this music. For pieces like the automatic earth, like ecstatic waters that have kind of an external theme, do you find that there is uh, a sort of common denominator among them? Oh, I mean, that's a, that's a good question. It's a tough one because I'm not really sure. Like I, I, with ecstatic waters, it was sort of self-evident because it was the first time I combined electronic sounds, the computer as an instrument in a large ensemble of acoustic humans. And so it's sort of meta in that it's about that itself. And that was an obvious topic because it's literally happening on stage in front of you. And then the music is about that. So that seemed organic and, and self-evident to do. And then just layer on top of that, my, my sense of futurism and technological usurpation of what it means to be human. So when I came back to it with the automatic earth, that's why I thought long and hard about it, because I had some trepidation about it. Like, okay, this topic is really important, but I can't 
I'm not going to like map out two degrees Celsius warming is like, can we hold it to that? Or four degrees, like these details about the issue. There's no way I can communicate that or maybe really should even try in the music. It's it's more of a psychological impression of dealing with this issue of magnitude. It's, it's not like I'm going to lay out evidence and for people who don't buy in or try to trigger people to change their ways. I, I mean, I would love to, but I don't know that music can do that. Let's be honest. Wind bands and even orchestras and entire, the entire classical world is a niche. As far as we look at the world population, there's a tiny sliver of people who ever interact with any of this or even know what these words mean. So wrestling with that, like, okay, well, I don't want it to feel pompous or overblown or if I'm like... I have this important thing. I, I'm very, very hesitant to, to go down that path. I don't know if that's growing up in Arkansas, you know, it's just not something you do. But once I found a way in with poetic titles and this own sort of journey with it, it also became something I couldn't avoid. It's weighed heavily on me for several years. I think I felt that I needed to go there. And then with Gary's prompting, it's like, okay, well, this is the time. How that shapes the music is, is a whole other thing. You know, it's for all of my pieces. I, they need to work regardless if you know any of the titles or the backstory. I need for them to work internally as just as music. This note follows that note, this motive, this return. Like, okay, that all feels like it has logic. I'm not sure what's happening here or why, but it makes sense. And that's very important to me regardless of that. But then it also needs to, once I layer on the titles and the, the extra musical stuff, it's like, oh yeah, that that is, that feels like that to me. I Hopefully listeners will think that. I mean, that's a whole other thing about the subjective experience, perception the received experience of music and, and all of that. And it's it's not universal, but I can't think too much about that or else I won't write a note. I just have to write stuff that I think connects. Uh, it's hard to answer that question. I'm not really sure how, but you know, if you look on the, the website for the automatic earth, if you go to stephenbryant.com and find search for the automatic earth, there's a whole lot of other stuff there that explains kind of the poetry I chose, the, the, the Paul Simon tunes. I don't know if anybody knows the boy in the bubble, but I'll read it. The it was a dry wind, and it swept across the desert, and it curled into the circle of birth, and the dead sand falling on the children, the mothers and the fathers, and the automatic earth. So that's where I got the title from. And just that imagery from, you know, the 80s in that song really was a starting point. And I thought, okay, that's a way in. That's that combination of the dying habitability of the planet and the technological interweaving of it seemed to get as close as I can to being able to talk about this in some way. Shifting gears a little bit, how do you think that the music industry can be more proactive to limit and reduce their environmental impact. Well, when you say, first of all, when you say music industry, are you talking about classical composers or band directors or pop musicians or the tour industry? Or we'll we'll steer clear of pop musicians and and the tour industry, but specifically in in the wind band world be that composers publishers like band programs drum corps things like that have you noticed any areas that you think that the band world can be more proactive or start taking steps to to limit their carbon footprint and environmental impact hmm that's a, that's a great question i don't know enough about where the greatest emissions are and what causes the most you know traveling and hauling stuff around so you know drum corps marching band or flying to gigs or any of that sort of stuff obviously is i would guess that's the most carbon intensive in the scheme of things compared to everything else it's it's a tiny sliver but if each you know 
printing music. I sell most of my music now as PDFs. You have a choice. Um, now that still means most people print it out on their end, but at least you're not spending the gas to haul a stack of paper across the country. So little things like that, I think it's just more being aware of every move you make does some damage to the world. It does expend energy and energy requires carbon emissions at this point, most of the time. And, and until the big factors change, until our energy is, is produced cleanly, there's not a whole lot we can do except just reduce. And I, that's the one thing that usually gets glossed over in the reduce, reuse, recycle, reduce. They always want some technological solution like clean energy or carbon capture. You know, no, the simplest thing is to plant a bunch more trees and do a lot less. But the economists don't want to hear that because that means slowing down economies because they're all based on infinite growth, which is unsustainable. It's a conundrum. Um, but as far as the band world and that sort of thing, you know, thinking, being just being aware of what you do, reduce the number of miles you travel if you can, take a more direct route, carry less stuff, less weight if you can, anything that you can reduce, do. Don't print off your music multiple times if you don't have to. I don't even know. See, I mean, I don't have numbers, so it's all anecdotal. So I, I hesitate to offer, like, you guys should do this to change your ways. Like, uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't think any of that in the grand scheme of things does too much damage, but just be aware of every move you make and how it affects even your daily lives. And we should all do that. Like I'm always looking for eco products, trying out sustainable toilet papers and paper towels and laundry detergents that come in sheets instead of hauling the, the big tubs of detergent goo and every little thing like that. They're small things, but if you can do that in your own personal life, and if I don't know if you're touring and you're carrying a lot of that stuff that can have less weight, it's very simple things just as a practice and to spread that word to other people has more of an impact than any one group cutting all their emissions. That's, that's not possible. I wish I had a better answer. That's a really good question, but I have no, I don't have enough information to, to, there may be some obvious areas that could really help, but I don't know what they are. And just, just a last thing, what do you hope that musicians who play the automatic earth and audience members who hear it take away from the piece, whether that's a specific message or a feeling, what do you, what do you hope that its impact is? I mean, I'd hope it would make people introspective and think about their own lives and emissions and ways of life. Hopefully they would go to some of these organizations that I list on the website, like 350.org or Drawdown and maybe give them a little money. I know that's sort of the obvious thing to do, but these people are doing the work and have all the information and know what needs to happen. And so helping them do their jobs means you don't have to carry the weight as much you know, try to figure out every little thing, give them some money and read the websites and see what they offer as far as, you know, tips for your own life. I would hope that and eventually enough people are outraged enough that we have a groundswell of movement against, not against, toward transformation of the core industries that do all the damage transportation sector, the fossil fuel industry, worldwide shipping and refrigeration, actually, the, the methane and stuff in, in, in the refrigeration actually is a huge contributor as well. So there's a few areas that do most of the damage. And if we could transform those, if people could say, yes, we need to transform those. So I hope they would think about that and be moved. But I, again, I don't harbor some sort of grandiose hope that my music will change the world. I I, I know better than that. Um, but if it can make a few people think and be moved, then that that's good. It gives me a platform to talk about it. That's not a bad thing, I guess. Well, thank you so much for doing this interview. I appreciate you sitting down to talk with me. Oh, and it's a pleasure. Thank you for the invitation and I hope all your listeners out there enjoy it. To 
offer another perspective on sustainability and wind bands, we're joined by the California Symphony's 2020 to 2023 Young American Composer in Residence, Viet Quang, to talk about his composition, Renewal. Yvette, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So your piece, Renewal, this fits really well with our topic of wind band works with the cause, and particularly in the sustainability category. Could you kind of just give us a little bit of a description of it, your inspiration, whatever you feel about share? Yeah, so Renewal is a percussion quartet concerto that uh, is inspired by three forms of renewable energy. So there's a hydro movement, a wind movement, and a solar movement. And in addition to kind of being inspired by those, the piece is also about um, synergy and working together because the percussion soloists in the piece all work as one single soloist. So the piece is also kind of a, a statement about what is possible when we do cooperate with one another. I love that. Okay. Uh, I'm sure you can't give us the full rundown, but could you give us a little bit about the instrumentation of the quartet? Yeah. So in the first movement in the hydro movement, the percussionists play um, tuned crystal glasses. And in this movement, it's kind of the meaning behind toasting crystal glasses is we usually do them toast glasses to celebrate something in, in the presence of other people. So it's kind of, that's the message behind that movement. And the second movement, it's a sort of octopus drum set formation where there's one single snare drum and then they each have their own kick drum and hi-hat. So in that movement, they're all uh, playing this really intricate, complicated drum and bass drum set beat that would be impossible to play with one person, but by dividing it between the four of them, it's made possible. And then the last movement is a lot of metallic percussion, um, including glockenspiel, vibraphone, gratalis. And uh, they also, in this movement, share a glockenspiel between the four of them. And the vibraphone kind of looks like a solar panel. So visually, it represents that as well. The symbolism is pretty clear to me. Is there anything maybe below the surface that you might not initially recognize by hearing the piece that's symbolic or that you intended as the composer? I think uh, just like some of the shared instruments um, kind of symbolize like everyone giving one arm or hand to the collective sound and the crystal glasses, especially like in the first movement, if you picture yourself holding one crystal glass in each hand, you can only toast with yourself and you have your one dyad. But if you have one else to toast with, you can create many more combinations and you can actually make something that sounds more musical. And in that movement, they're also in pairs. So they are toasting with someone else, but they're not a unified like quartet in the way that the second and third movements are. So it also kind of tells a story of when they leave the first movement, they leave kind of separately in two pairs. And then when they leave the second movement to go to the third one, they're then unified as one quartet. All right. Interesting. You know, I'm interested in the name with the parentheses. You know, could you touch on that? Yeah. Uh, so it's obviously called renewal, but having the new in parentheses. But then if you look at the word without new, it's real. It's kind of like new, real, the new reality that we're all, we're all constantly living in a new reality. And it's like thinking about what that is and like what our part is in that. Mm-hmm. So many layers to that. Jeez. Uh, anything in particular motivate you to write this piece? Yeah. So this was with the Albany Symphony years ago, because the piece originally existed as an orchestra piece. And even for that, a chamber orchestra piece. And the Albany Symphony is in upstate New York near Schenectady. 
where GE has a headquarters and they have a renewable energy headquarters there as well. And GE is one of the sponsors of the Albany Symphony. So they were the renewable energy people were like, oh, it would be cool if a composer was like willing to write a piece to kind of celebrate what we're doing with renewable energy. And yeah, I, I was asked to do it and it was something I really believe in. And so I was like, okay, well, let's do it. <laughs> so that's really the story behind it. And then after that original chamber orchestra version, I made a full orchestra version and then a wind band version. And actually in like four days, I believe, uh, the Vanderbilt Wind Symphony is releasing a new chamber version that uh-huh. I just made with 20 players. Congratulations. Kind of the COVID version. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> So you say you're so passionate about this. It's easy to clear. It's clear to me that you are, you know, writing pieces, doing all this work. Do you have any ideas about how the music community could be better about decreasing its environmental impact? Yeah, I, you know, all of us, whether we like it or not, have some sort of environmental impact on this world. And even outside of the music industry, like we all owe it to our planet to do our part in terms of producing less waste and minimizing our driving and all that stuff. And as a music, like in the classical music world, obviously we don't produce as much waste as say like a fast fashion company (laughs) or, you know, you read about those things. It's so horrible, like how much waste is produced in making clothing. Um, So we're not like quite at that level, but we, like I said, we, I think we all still can do our part. And I think one of the big things is travel when we travel to conferences. And that's a lot of people like think of Midwest, like how many people there are going to, and I don't know what the solution is yet, but it's, something we have to be mindful of and maybe like for other conferences that are smaller it's it's a hard thing because we want to have those conferences because we can be together and it's really beautiful like when we can come together especially after covid like <laughs> i personally am looking forward to traveling <laughs> and uh seeing people again but it's just something we have to be mindful of and maybe in a post-covid world like other things like having a i'm just even thinking of when composers do visits at schools and when it's not when it's not like a rehearsal situation where it's really imperative that we be there if it's just like a one-off presentation like you don't need to fly someone out for that <laughs> let's have it on Zoom. but rehearsal is different like when we have when i'd be able to hear it because i think we all know by now zoom rehearsals don't work very well but another thing is uh the amount of paper that we use in the music publishing industry it's a lot of paper and i think there's starting to be solutions for that in terms of people using ipads a lot more which in itself can have an environmental impact because the production of ipads but at least with maybe with an ipad it lasts years and you can use it for other things too it's not just to read music But there are also, um, I saw at Midwest, some um, products that they're developing to have music digitally, like on a music stand. And so in that way, it's you're producing less paper parts, but also saving on the shipping, which is another thing that so much shipping in this world now, especially with so much online shopping. that a lot of fuel being burned and just you know um so that's a that's a thing too is just like the publishing industry i think it's kind of going through a lot of changes anyway but having music published in a virtual way i think will help and there's one more thing i was gonna say for now oh like i know that like rentals can be annoying part rentals but every time you rent a set of parts it's one less set that has to be printed out and if it's going to have to be shipped anyway (laughs) it's 
still like kind of having to print out a brand new set of parts every time a piece is being played, I think can make a small impact. And like I said before, we don't, in the music industry, I don't think we have as many, especially the classical music where we're not like, we're not like, uh, you know, Beyonce going on tour and bringing a ton of stuff around the world. <laughs> right. And so we don't have as a severe an impact as some other industries, but we can still do our part in these small ways, I think. All right. Well, thank you so much. Your insight has been so profound. Really appreciate having composers on. So, Oh yeah. Thanks for having me. Our final guest for this episode is Dr. Jay Watkins. He works at the University of Florida as the Associate Director of Bands, Director of Athletic Bands, Assistant Professor in the School of Music, and as the Director of the Pride of the Sunshine, the Gator Marching Band. Dr. Watkins took that marching band down a slightly unconventional path in the name of reducing waste and saving money. Thank you so much for being on with us. Oh, thank you very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. So on this note of sustainability, could you tell us about your band's program's paperless policy? Sure. Uh, We started actually uh, several years ago looking to uh, minimize how much paper we were using. And uh, because, you know, we we were printing music uh, for every student, for every show, because here at Florida, we do a, a different halftime show for every uh, home game. So that's, you know, six, seven, eight different shows. So that's different music all the time, different music for uh, to play in the stands, uh, drill charts constantly. Uh, so it was a lot of printing and copying and, you know, stapling and cutting and stuff. So uh, we looked to minimize that as much as possible. So one of the first things we did was we pushed uh, all the drill to software um, using Pyware and then the UDB, the ultimate drill book app. So we could just simply push drill out um, to all the students uh, so they could actually see the full picture and then see their coordinates um, and do all of that through their phone. Uh, since we realized everybody has one. And uh, they always have it with them and they almost always have it on. So uh, we figured we'd make the best best use of that. Uh, And I will say that uh, one of the big questions was, well, do we really want them looking at their phone that much during rehearsal? Uh, And our our take was, at least my take was, if we're not moving fast enough uh, and they have time to look at their phone or Facebook or anything else on their phone, then that's on us for not moving fast enough. So we, you know, they get everything. Uh, pushed out to them and then we go and we uh, we've been able to actually be very efficient with that Uh, and then this past year um, mainly due to uh, COVID issues uh, but even before that we started pushing music out um, through PDFs to their phones as well Uh, and then obviously this past fall with with COVID issues we didn't do anything with paper um so that that allowed us to just further push everything out uh, again pdfs to to their phones um, some students chose to print it uh, and and use a traditional uh, liar if they wanted to uh, most i would say probably 98 percent of the band just did everything on either a phone or a tablet um, and so it just it really it, it was very easy uh, to do there are there are a couple of apps that you can use um, and that some folks are using. 
Um, I think the University of Illinois is actually one of the ones using the flip folder app. Um, and then obviously the UDB app for, for drill. Um, but it just makes it very simple to one, push information out. Two, it's much easier to make changes and get updated information out to the students uh, if you're just pushing it out electronically. Um, and it, it, it just really, I, we figured out the first year we did that, we saved over $35,000 in just printing and paper costs. Oh my gosh. I find it really interesting how much of a, con- from a convenience standpoint, how much this helped. Cause I figured it might be a little bit of a hassle in the beginning, but it seemed like it was a pretty smooth transition for you all. Well, yes, we, that was one of our hesitations too, is like, okay, this is going to be kind of a hassle. But once we just kind of committed to it and started uh, it, the transition went really fast and the students picked up on it very quickly. And, um, and we do everything. I mean, we have all of our scores digitized. Um, and so we're, uh, Dr. Bertner and I, uh, Dr. Bertner's the assistant director of bands. He and I do everything from, um, basically tablets, iPads. Um, so where we've got scores and drill and, and everything we need that way. Um, we just moved on to a, a brand new practice field, uh, for the band program, uh, about two years ago, and then had that set up with Wi-Fi that can handle, uh, over 400 individual connections simultaneously. So in terms of equipment or technology, that was kind of the only thing we wanted to make sure was taken care of was that everybody would be able to connect and have that connectivity. Uh, and since they're all UF students, you know, they have access to the, to the closed university Wi-Fi system. So that took care of uh, the security issues. So it's just, it, it, it actually has been spectacular. And I'll also say that this year, uh, again, due to COVID, we we moved all of the concert ensembles uh, to being paperless as well. So, and that has worked tremendously well because um, we're able to do part assignments and push the parts out to specific students um, very quickly and easily. And then if for some reason, you know, a student is, uh, is sick or something that they're going to miss a rehearsal and they need to have a sub cover, cover their parts. All they do is just send the electronic copy of their parts to that other student. Um, and then that student has parts. So it has worked amazingly. Um, and we did that in the fall. We, did, we broke in the fall, we broke everybody into chamber groups. So we were constantly updating repertoire every three to four weeks and just doing it all basically just by scanning the parts that we had and sending them directly to the students. And it, it has been phenomenal. So what, when did you, when was the idea first introduced for this, you know, paperless policy and how long did it really take to implement? Could you kind of walk us through the time frame? Well, we had been uh, discussing it for a while just because of the hassle of, you know, if you're, if you're trying to do drill, let's just stick with drill. You you're trying to update drill. So that means you need to print it, copy it, and then distribute it at rehearsal before you can even start teaching it. So that just takes an enormous amount of time uh, and, and, you know, man hours to get it done, you know, or, or, and people, you know, to do that. And so the first thing we did just to kind of ease into it was we first off started sending the, the um, electronic uh, drill charts to all of our staff. 
um, just to kind of work out the kinks in that system that way um, and figure out what worked best for them um, and, and connectivity issues and things like that. Then we moved that up to sending it to all of the section leaders. So all of the section leaders got complete drill charts, but we were still printing the individual coordinate sheets for everyone. Uh, and then, like I said, about, I guess it was three years ago, two, yeah, two or three years ago, we went to pushing everything out electronically for marching band. Is music memorized in your marching bands? Yes. Because I was wondering how you could manage so many different apps at once, but <laughs> if that takes care of that. Yeah, we, we, we push them to have everything memorized. Now, obviously during the learning process, they're able to toggle back and forth between looking at their music or then if they need to find a, a coordinate, they can toggle back and forth between, between those two things. Um, usually the only time they're ever really reading music is if we're trying to learn new stands tunes and having certainly a, a large library of stands music, you know, to play for games that at times people will be reading music for that. So I'm interested to hear about the adjustment from paper liars to, you know, electronic reading music with, or, and drills with electronic uh, equipment for the particular instruments. Like maybe a piccolo and a tuba would have different difficulties with balancing a phone or a tablet. Could you touch on that? Well, we found that what the students did, we um, not obviously piccolos that that's just they they all have their music memorized they're always the first people that have their music memorized so they're not worried about using it with music and a, what we did the first year was we actually bought like waterproof camera bags for all their phones waterproof phone bags that they hung on a lanyard around their neck and then anytime they need they would you know they would need it they would just look lift it up look at it and then put it down and be able to play a lot of different sections did that. The stu a lot of students, um, you know, the marching band here is is the majority of them are engineering majors, so a lot of them came up with their own different ways to mount either their phone or their tablet on their instrument uh, during rehearsals, which was fine. This past year, we this past fall, we actually tried out several different types of lyres specifically for phones and tablets on their instruments before we committed to, to, you know, fully buying those for every instrument in the band. And so now we're, we're ready to do that for the fall is, is to basically provide those specific liars, little heavier weight liars. Cause part of the issue with that too, is it just, it's extra weight added to the, the instrument, you know, and for things like trombone and baritone, especially that's, you know, that's just more weight out front that they're having to carry. Um, so we've been trying to work work around ways to to minimize the the added weight to the instrument. So I kind of like to shift the conversation towards sustainability in general from like a holistic standpoint with band. Um, so clearly, it takes a lot of equipment to run a marching band. There's a lot you have to buy. There's a lot you have to maintain. Do you think you have a better environmental impact now that you have switched over, or do you think you're still using? about as much equipment and disposable things as you were before? Well, I would say our environmental impact is in some ways lessened quite a bit by going paperless. I mean, obviously we're not using as much paper or we're not using the resources of the copy machine, you know, toner, electricity, all of those things. I guess the other concern would just be that we are, we are using, obviously we're still using phones and tablets all the time, 
but quite frankly, the students would have those with them anyway. So I'm not sure that that's an that's any type of an increased use. And we're, we're just using, you know, it's basically just bring your own device. So we're not really buying extra electronic equipment, you know, that'll someday end up in a, you know, in a landfill. So I don't think we're, we're really adding to uh, any stresses to the environment uh, by going this way. And I think if anything, we're constantly trying to figure out ways to reduce that. I mean, another thing we did is we we got rid of using, and, and we had done this long before COVID, is that we require everybody to bring their own water container to rehearsal, you know, so we're not using big coolers and, and paper cups, you know, so everybody's responsible for just having their own container. So there's no uh, disposable, you know, water cups or anything like that. So we've, we've tried to do as many things like that as we can just to really eliminate waste and, and eliminate as many disposable items from marching band as we can. Definitely pretty difficult to lessen the technology burden in a 21st century classroom, for sure. So... You know, I don't know if anyone's holding that against you, <laughs> but. Well, no, nobody, nobody is, but I just know that that is another, you know, the concern about adding technology, you know, just like, you know, their discussions now, you know, about why, uh, why Bitcoin or any other type of uh, digital coin or digital currency is bad is because it uses so much energy to generate and things like that. So I think there, there is, people should just be mindful of the fact that if you replace something with technology, that at some point that technology is going to wear out and then what happens to it then. But I, I really don't think we're adding to, we're adding to the technology pile at all. Have you noticed any changes in the rehearsal process or just logistically in rehearsals or planning in general that you didn't initially anticipate? Well, I would say that rehearsals are much more efficient. We don't have to waste rehearsal time handing things out, you know, distributing it to the section leaders and then having the section leaders distribute it to the, the members of their sections. We, you know, we, we push everything out before rehearsal starts. They show up to rehearsal with all of the materials they need and, and we're able to be much more efficient with the time we're actually in class. So I, I would say from that standpoint, it has made our rehearsals much more efficient. We're able to switch back and forth between songs faster. It, it has helped uh, in a tremendous way to make us more efficient. So the result, the effects seem to be profoundly positive for this. Is there anything you think that doesn't work as well? And how are you trying to mediate that? Really, the only issues we have is if students are, if the device that the student brings isn't uh, as current uh, and has issues with, you know, either Wi-Fi connectivity or storage or, you know, things like that in terms of their device being able to receive the information we're pushing out. And, and that's actually the only issues we've had. And it's a very, very small percentage so I would say, yes, it has been overwhelmingly positive and a tremendous cost savings. Do you have any words of wisdom for conductors of wind bands, marching bands, concert bands, anything who are looking to make the switch? Do it. Just, just bite the bullet and make the change. It, it makes life so much easier. And you are, there's just less paper everywhere. And you know, anybody who's, you know, anytime you copy something, it's going to end up somewhere. Very rarely does it end up in a paper recycling bin. It's just, it makes things so much more effective. It might mean that you need to do things a little further in advance prior to rehearsals, but it is well worth it for the cost savings and just for the efficiency that it brings to your rehearsals. 
Well, thank you so much. What you've shared has been profoundly insightful and really is going to help us out with this podcast. So we appreciate it greatly. Oh, thank you so much for, uh, for inviting me on. And uh, it's, a, it's been a pleasure. We'd like to thank you for supporting us as a viewer by listening to this episode of One More Time, a wind band podcast. If you enjoyed it, please take a moment to share it on the social media platform of your choice and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. If you want to stay current with Illinois bands between episodes, follow us on Facebook, join us on Instagram at Illinois underscore bands, or find us on Twitter at Illinois Bands. We invite you to check out our website for more info at www.illinois.edu. This episode's executive producer was Dr. Anthony Messina, our staff sponsor. This episode was edited and co-produced by Owen Henderson, hosted and co-produced by myself, Lucy Yaki. Our two-minute rehearsal technique was produced by Emmett O'Brien, and our social media and marketing coordinator is Owen Henderson. None of this would be possible without the Illinois Bands faculty, Stephen Peterson, Director of Bands, Linda Morehouse, Senior Associate Director of Bands, Elizabeth Peterson, Associate Director of Bands, and Barry Hauser, Associate Director of Bands and Director of Athletic Bands. The Illinois Bands program is a department of the School of Music at the University of Illinois in the College of Fine and Applied Arts. We would like to thank Stephen Bryant, Viet Quang, Jay Watkins, Cindy Severino, and Scott Schwartz for their contributions to this episode. We hope you will join us for our next episode of One More Time, a wind band podcast.